everybody. It's Mike. It's Tim. Welcome to the Voxology Podcast. I'm going to say that again in a few minutes as we introduce our guest today. <laughs> I'll say that exact almost intro. Uh, our guest today is Caitlin Shess, um, straight from Duke Divinity School via the Holy Post Podcast, which she is a co-host of, via her brilliant book, the Liturgy of Politics via her spicy Twitter feed. Uh, we're just big fans. And yes. she is, man, she is so smart and doing such good work in a very, very relevant arena of the intersection of faith, communities, and politics, and Bible. And I want to title this, Tim, what do you think? I want to title this, How to Be a Christian Nationalist. Hmm. Because she kind of gets into it's yes, provocative. because she kind of she kind of gets into like yeah, you're right. Uh, let's take them seriously, and then then have them explain what their vision of what that country would be, and show how it falls short of the very text that they're claiming is kind of the blueprint for the nation. Yeah, um, the stuff that she talks about with what she's doing at Duke. Oh my goodness, would just be such a rad thing to have at seminary, like just causing people who totally. want to lead groups of people to really engage in just really, really critical thought and not yeah. just being told what to think, but being like asking why you think what you think. Yes. Yep. So we're just not even going to waste much time. We've got a whole bunch of responses to the, um, the biblical masculinity conversation yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so we'll do an episode on that next and we'll get to some of your responses because there were some great like, hey, I don't think you thought about this or what about this? Some great, great pushback, some great affirmation, but love, love that stuff. Yeah. Um, but man, Caitlin, geez, we just sort of ask qu broad questions and then she just goes. Yeah, it's brilliant. Totally. So, so <laughs> we're very happy. Anyway. Friends, thank you so very much for being a part of our community. Uh, the Holy Post podcast um, is um, a really good complement to some of the things that, that we do. And so we do some crossover stuff with them. Um, we've had Sky on and I uh, just did an interview with Phil over there. And Caitlin is part of their team as well. Um, all that is to say we're super uh, and profoundly grateful uh, to be a part of your life today, whatever you, it is you're doing, and uh, hope you enjoy Caitlin as much as we do. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Voxology Podcast, and today I am Mike Erie. I, am, I was Mike Erie <laughs> yesterday <today>. and <laughs> tomorrow too, but today I am Mike Erie with... My trusty co-host, Tim Stafford, and the co-host of The Holy Post, Caitlin Shess. <laughs> good morning, Caitlin. How are Well, it's good afternoon to you. Yes, yes. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. How are you? We're doing great. We, yeah. Thank you for coming on, on yeah. our podcast. We've had you on to talk about your book, Liturgy of, of Politics, which was phenomenal and highly recommended as it is now and will be perpetually relevant to a church <laughs> tempted to be formed by cultural and political liturgies instead of the liturgy of the scriptures in the church. Um, but I, I've just been dying to have you uh, back on to talk about what you're learning. Uh, if you don't know, Caitlin is a doctoral student at Duke Divinity School, which is a big freaking deal. 
And um, especially as a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary, that is not a typical path. Um, I'm fairly certain at this point that there is not another person that has done it. I no. haven't found I haven't found anyone yet. No, so. if you're new to the whole like Jesus tribal thing, Dallas Theological Seminary is known as a very very conservative institution, um, or at least the faculty is, and theologically. Um, and, and I would imagine, Caitlin, there were uh, people there who weren't huge fans of women preaching or, um, you know, women yeah, yeah. kind of doing the work that you're doing. And then in mm -hmm. Duke, I would imagine it's very much the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. And so what's that been like? What's that been like? Because you, you, your background was uh, in SBC, right? Were you raised a in the Southern Baptist mm -hmm. Convention? A little bit, okay. Yeah, I was a military kid, so we kind of went to different churches everywhere we moved, but generally kind of non-denominational, conservative non-denominational churches, SBC churches. Mm. You know those mm. churches that, like, if you dig enough, you find out they're SBC, but you didn't originally yeah. know. That was most <laughs> yeah, yeah, of the yeah. churches that yeah, I yeah. went to. Um, and then went to a very self-consciously SBC church in, in college. Um, yeah, it's interesting. When I was telling my professors at Dallas, when it became public knowledge at Dallas that I was going to Duke, the mentors that I had, the people that were really close to me were thrilled. Like they felt mm. like, wow, you got into this great program. There's it's, so many yeah. opportunities. Like that's amazing. Um, I did have a lot of professors who I didn't know very well, who would like stop me in the hallway and be like, and usually a couple of them said some version of don't lose your faith or like, don't mm -hmm. be led astray. Or, but that was definitely secondary to the primary thing that they would say, which was usually they're going to hate you there. It's going to be so hard and they're going to, um, you know, basically just you can't be a conservative Christian there without without wow. being really hated. It's wow. good professor and, encouragement. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and again, it was usually people who didn't know me very mm -hmm. well and didn't know the school very well. And they just kind of had a caricature in their head. And first of all, of all of the kinds of schools like Duke, Duke is on the more conservative end of those kinds of like mainline seminaries mm -hmm. or, or, you know, bigger like prestigious schools that have religious yeah. studies departments, yeah. Yeah. Um, more conservative than others. And I mean, what I have learned about being at Duke that I love is that most of the students, especially the MDiv students, which I don't have as much involvement with, but I do get to, you know, TA for their classes and meet them in some context. Most of them come from evangelical backgrounds. Like wow. most of them come from evangelical churches. A lot of them come from evangelical undergrad places. Mm. Um, I think one of the big, I think it's maybe the number one feeder into Duke Divinity is Wheaton College. Oh, um, wow. So I there's a ton that. of, right. So there's a ton of people with evangelical backgrounds, but it does usually, the choice to come to Duke usually represents at least some <laughs> questioning of, yeah. of some of their background. Um, sometimes it's just academic prestige, but a lot of the time it's like trying to figure out, it's a lot of women trying to figure out where they can mm. serve and use their gifts. And so mm. that's kind of a sweet spot for me in terms of yeah. talking to students is like people who both share a background with me, but also people who are really, I mean, sometimes really struggling after being in an environment where it felt like you know, there's a pretty strong foundation of things we agree on mm -hmm. to an environment where to be academically serious is to be critical of mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. Um, and I hope we can find together like a middle ground between that. But I, it's really a sweet spot for me to talk to students who are going, do I have to throw away everything I grew up with? And, mm -hmm. and how do I discern what to be critical of and what not to be? And how do I honor the real sometimes faithful efforts of the generations before me at my little church that I think had good intentions and maybe there was some bad stuff, but also there was goodness. And how do I 
grapple with that. And, and yeah. that really, to me, that's really like a really sweet spot to be in that I didn't expect yeah. would be a whole other part of being here. That's awesome. What, what is, I mean, just, I'm selfishly curious. What's the most interesting class you're taking right now? Oh, right now. Yeah. Um, oh, that's really hard. Um, <laughs> Cause there's like the shock value answer, which is I'm taking a marks class this semester. Beautiful. And so a lot of people in some of my circles are like, whoa, but honestly, much more interesting than that. I'm taking a, um, I'm taking a class on Wittgenstein, yes. who was a literary theorist. Yep. And um, that class is like, it's, it's about Wittgenstein, it's about ordinary language philosophy. It's all about how language and community are related and human mm. life forms are related to language. Mm. And that is just like really fun and really interesting. And what that means for us ethically and what that means for mm. us in church, con I mean, this class is in the literature department. It's not in the divinity yeah. school at all, but there's yeah. there's quite a few divinity students in it. It's a pretty popular class for divinity students to take. And so for us who feel like we're in communities where it seems very obvious that language has something to do with community, like the, yeah. the creeds that we say or the songs that we sing or um, the fact that our tradition that we belong to has been passed down partially with life forms, but also partially through a text that we read, yeah. mm -hmm. like we're eating that up in terms yeah. of just like, what does that mean for what, forms our communities? What does that mean for some of the disputes we have about language? Like the fact that we could fight about what deconstruction means, or we could fight about what um, nationalism means, or we could, you know, what does um, critical race theory mean? Like sometimes those like language questions, um, we're having a really fun time learning that there's all of these people who have thought about this in a very different context than ours. Yeah. And yet that stuff can be so useful for us. Too. Do you have a little divinity pod that's taking those classes together? outside of the or are you flying solo on that kind of flying solo but a lot of the students of my same advisor end up taking a lot of the same stuff mm. um but this class is fun because it's some people i haven't really met um and at different in different programs in the divinity school and so it's fun i think one of the things i've missed a little bit about being at duke compared to dallas is that at dallas most of the students are going to pastor so the questions mm. we ask in class are about church and how do we make decisions about things in church and now most of my peers are not going to go into the church or they're not that's not their plan currently and so this class is fun because most of the divinity students in it are in the mdiv or another master's mm. program and a lot of them are going to go into the church um and so they're like i haven't quite had that intersection of very church-minded but also wanting to take a class in the, in the literature department on ordinary language philosophy like at dallas the very church-oriented people tended to take very right. practical classes, yep. kind of avoid some of the theoretical stuff, the systematic theology, the philosophy. I, I feel like, again, my sweet spot is like students who are like, I want to serve the church. I'm called to this. I'm getting ordained. Also, in a weird way that people might not expect, I kind of think a bunch of old dead philosophers should shape what I'm doing with my church, which is Yeah, I think awesome. that's rad. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's a great, yeah. that's a great answer. And <laughs> I mean, I mean, in, in the applications into how we understand scripture and the role of scripture in spiritual yeah, and spiritual yeah. and communal formation yeah. and, yep. oh my goodness, that would have endless sort of applications. And, um, and you've just, you're contracted now to write a new book, correct? I turned it in. Do you have a topic in, for that? Oh, um, you, you turned it in. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. How in the I, world do you pull that I off? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Good I actually, Lord. I'm really excited today, this afternoon, I finally get to show people the cover, um, which is oh. exciting. So yeah, I, it is turned in. It is about how we read scripture for political purposes. 
Um, But each chapter is half a historical example in American history of how we have used scripture for some political purpose. And then half evaluating that example for positive or negative things we could learn. So one of the earliest chapters is about loyalist priests during the Revolutionary War giving sermons on Romans 13 against the revolution and kind of evaluating like, you know, I thought that was a better inroad to that conversation than, hey, let's think about why we shouldn't use Romans 13 against Black Lives Matter protests, which feel like this heated, immediate, visceral response instead to say, well, let's look at this sermon from a long time ago that you probably disagree with now. (laughs) Does the language they're using sound sort of similar? And if it Mm. does... Is that good language? Is it bad? How do we evaluate how we should use that in light of this other stuff that feels a little more distanced from us and yet still very related to our identity as as Americans, as Christians? It still has been a tradition of reading the Bible that we inherit, mm-hmm. but in a very different context than the one that we're in oh, now. So smart. So. What do you, what are you seeing as you were doing research for the book? I mean, that first of all, that sounds amazing, and Thanks. it'll probably be out what a year if it, if you just turned it in a year from now. August of next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Okay. Well, congrats. That's ridiculous. Um, What are you seeing as you've looked into the layered sort of history of um, using the Bible in these terms? What are you seeing these days that has interesting historical parallels? Um, yes. So. I, mean, I imagine, I imagine quite a bit. And if you don't want to get into it because, you know, buy the book in a year, great. Um, no. But, you, there has to just your your brain has to be continually exploding with oh my goodness here it is again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it is interesting both that we tend to go to the same passages like that really has not changed in mm. two hundred or three hundred years. Um, in some, one of the funny things that has changed if there is a difference in the passages we go to, it's that we're just so much less biblically literate. Yeah, <laughs> so there are some passages time. from you know the revolutionary era or pre-revolutionary era, colonial era that like were obvious, you know, people could tell the shorthand, like for one example, during the Revolutionary War, there was frequent references to the Curse of Miraz, which obviously everyone is (laughs) familiar with, Um, you know, which is part, which is a, which is a curse given to a group of people that didn't join Israel's fight against Mm. a people group. And so it was this curse of like, you were passive when you should have been fighting. Mm. And that was a curse that was kind of invoked against many of the people during the Revolutionary War who were not, you know, patriots or loyalists, but were just kind of like a farmer that doesn't want to be involved. You know, that curse was used against them. Mm. And people were literate enough when it came to the Bible, at least the images and language of it, that someone could just, you know, similar to how today I can say Romans 13. And a lot of Christians will be like, oh, obey the government. They could say curse of Miraz and someone could be like, oh, I know what that means. Um, So we're less biblically literate, but we do have a lot of the same passages that we go to and a lot of the same. I think one of the most interesting things is that we have the same way of reading, even if we're dealing with very different political issues across different lines. So like Mm. we still have a tendency to kind of cherry pick, pull things out of their context and just sort of apply them. Um, But we also like some of the racial differences are very similar today, Mm. like Mm. white Christians on the right or the left tend to think I need to pull this verse that proves a universal principle that requires some kind of political response. Mm. So I can pull Mm. a verse about the Jubilee and be like, that means student loan forgiveness. Or I can pull a verse about whatever. And that's just like universal. I've, I've pulled it out and there it is. 
That's so good. Um, black Christians have tended not to do that. <laughs> what mm-hmm. they have more likely tended to do is still go to things like the Jubilee or, or tended to go to the Exodus or the language of exile. They have more tended to say, what is this narrative story and where do I find mm-hmm. myself within it? And what resources does that provide for me to respond to this specific need in front of me? That's rather so than... I pulled this verse about the Jubilee out and just kind of said, bam, this automatically apl-. like that's, that's both kind of a fruit of modern ways of thinking mm-hmm. that ethics is just universal. There's no context. There's no specific, totally. you know, perspective and that texts can kind of just be treated that way. Like mm-hmm. there are the words on the page, you understand them clearly, bam, you have this response. Whereas the black church in America has historically been more creative and thought more in terms of image and community and identity to say, I, I actually like during the Civil War per- period when a lot of white Christians were fighting back and forth, you know, pulling a verse from Galatians about freedom and saying, mm-hmm. OK, liberate the slaves or pulling verses from the Old or New Testament about slaves and saying, OK, no, actually, this is this is mm-hmm. described in Scripture. It's good. It's interesting that most enslaved or free black people at that point weren't picking either of those responses. Like they mm-hmm. weren't going to Galatians and pulling that out or they weren't going to Philemon as often and saying here what most of the time they were doing is saying. I read the Exodus and I see an oppressed people responding to a political and economic power. I find myself in the story of scripture because I don't think history works the way that white people think it works in this linear kind of, <laughs> I see myself in this story. And I think if I'm part of God's people now, that means that God's people's experience in the past has something to say to me. And those are resources, language, um, the songs that they would use would be pulling so much of that biblical language and motivating really faithful work and it's interesting how that's often true today too that like mm-hmm. white people who are thinking about racial justice tend to just kind of pit cherry picked verses against each other yes and and black people in the US that are thinking about racial justice that are christians that are wanting to have kind of a scriptural basis for it tend to say what is the narrative and and really truly importantly do i read the current situation correctly enough to know where i am in the mm. story and where the story matches up with scripture's story that is such a healthier way. Yeah. It seems like to live it as embodied theology or narrative theology of the community of which I'm a part mm-hmm. rather than uh, lobbing shells of individual verses. Oh my word, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Is some of that, do you think, related to the Christian nationalism language that's floating around? I mean, it seems like we've gone from that's a bad thing to that's a good thing, that no one knows what it means. I mean, what's your what's your take as you see... Uh, discourse, civil and otherwise, surrounding <laughs> this topic, really begin to take a very high profile. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, again, like I think studying history, it, it makes it harder for you to have one, to, to fall into one or the other camp. Mm. <laughs> like I feel like when I first started hearing a lot of the Christian nationalism stuff, which even when I wrote my book in 2019, like wasn't common enough language that I even like used it, even though I was kind of talking about similar things. Um, When I first encountered it, I thought, oh yeah, I know, I've experienced this, I've seen this, I know this kind of confluence of American civil religion language and biblical language. And one of the things that doing a lot of this historical research made harder for me to do is that that has always been in American history. There's always been that confluence of kind of civil Republican, kind of not Republican in the party sense, but yeah. in the political the philosophy Republic. sense. Republic, yeah. Yeah, um, that kind of language has always been mixed up with biblical language. Mm. 
but in ways that are not the same kinds of weight, like I think two really important things. One, um, a lot of black Americans used that kind of confluence of language in ways that are pretty similar and yet directed towards a different end. So instead of being afraid of mixing biblical and political language, especially language about America, instead what they most often did was, and um, Maria Stewart was like an early preacher and abolitionist who wrote similar things about this. Hmm. Um, she used that kind of language. Like it sounds sort of Christian nationalist in some ways, but it's oriented towards hold America to the promises that America has made. Like, I'm going to use oh. this civil religion language, but I'm going to use it to say, this is who you say you are. And actually, you're not living up to that. And actually, mm. the Bible gives me language for to, for to a certain extent going along with the claims of a nation, but then subverting it to say, you haven't done what, what you have said that you would do. Oh. You haven't lived up to those kinds of standards. So that's one part that I think historically gets missed with some of this. The other part is really early American history, there's similar examples, like language that sounds so similar to Christian nationals and stuff today, but again, has sometimes a different like thrust at the end or a different demand upon you. Like um, one of the early examples of this is um, John Winthrop's A Model of Christian Charity, which is where we get mm. the language of city on a hill mm. that has played such a significant role in American cool. history, Re Ronald Reagan, especially, but many American, I mean, interestingly enough, after um, JFK used that language. Every American president, or pre I think maybe even major presidential candidate, has used that language until Trump. <laughs> oh, wow. Trump was like, "I'm not, I'm not calling this a city on a hill. I'm going to disparage where we're at." You know, um, but that that speech, um, this like early, some people think it's a sermon, some people think it's a speech that John Winthrop gave, very Christian nationalisty sounding. But also a big thrust of it is like, if we are this nation that God is leading to this place, which disagree. I don't think that God has given you this land and now you can do whatever you want. But his point partially is if that's true, the same thing is true of Israel. That's true of us, which is if we mistreat the poor and the vulnerable among us, then mm. we won't have this land anymore. Like mm. it's not guaranteed mm. to us if we're not being faithful. And and the early community that John Winthrop was the, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay colony, he like persecuted, persecuted, he prosecuted um, someone for, price gouging during a famine because he mm. said you're mistreating the people that you that are so vulnerable that they yeah. are just going to pay you whatever because they need to feed their families so we we pull this like language historically and say we've always had this kind of christian nation language and it's like yeah. well yeah but in the past some of that language was used by people either who had power but said i am aware that scripture gives me a reason to say that if we abuse this power it will be taken away from us or by poor and marginalized people saying, okay, if this is who you say you are, I'm going to yeah. hold you to account for it. And that's a very different, mm -hmm. I, sometimes I'm a little hesitant about us just sort of saying, let's get rid of all of that language entirely. What I want us to do is say, if this has shaped our country for so long, let's go back and see where it has brought about the best kind of outcomes or where people have wow. used it in subversive ways or where people have said, yeah, okay, let's let's go along for a hot minute, Christian nationalists, with what you think. If you really think that there's some relationship between America and Israel, you really think God has chosen us, you really think this should be a Christian nation, what does that demand of us truly? Like, what would that actually demand we do for the most poor and vulnerable in our country? Not to say, yes, you're right, yes, let's get rid of pluralism, yes, that, but just to say, is there, a, is there a different avenue for attacking this that says, what would it really look like for you to be held to account for what you think this country should mm. be. That's Did so you good. see those conversations happening on both of your campuses? Like 
I imagine on Duke you are for sure. And then I would imagine that literature course helps provoke that kind of like asking questions and then thinking critically about how to process information. Did you see that also at the seminary? Yeah, it's funny. I so I started seminary in 2016. Hello. So that that whole semester was just like um it's interesting because like in 2016 at a place like Dallas, there was actually a lot of people really horrified by what was going on. More people horrified in 2016 than I think in 2020. I think we got Mm. desensitized to it. And a lot of people who had who had had four years of their people in their churches telling them this was fine, had kind of acquiesced to a certain extent by 2020. Um, But in 2016, like it, it was really alarming to people what was happening with Trump. And I do think that that, made more of a conversation about patriotism and nationalism a possibility and there were a lot of people there going maybe that's the way out is not just by saying hey this isn't the guy but by saying let's return to a more global historic understanding of the faith and that directly contradicts a more christian nationalist way of thinking um i worry though interestingly at a place like at more conservative places or more moderate places Many of the people who I think looked at the world in 2016, looked at the Christian response to Trump in 2016 and in 2020, and were really horrified, mm-hmm. found in Christian nationalism language, I think sometimes, this might be controversial, sometimes I think they found in that language a little bit of an out to engaging it all. Like they mm. thought, okay, this is a mess in 2016, it's a mess in 2020, Christian nationalism is so bad, what, what I think that means is that my faith should have nothing to do with what I do in public. Like we well, should just my, like fully disengage from the yeah, conversation. Yeah. yeah. My, my church has been infected by Christian nationalism. And so we're not going to talk about politics. We're not going to touch anything mm. because anything would be akin to oh, trying to, so you good. know, kind of exert my faith in the public square. And I just well, worry totally. that it gave people who had some power to say some hard things to their church. I fear that it gave them an out to not do it, to say, we're going to take the more kind of withdrawal approach. We're going to take more of a like, you know, foreigners and exiles kind of approach which can be very fruitful language in some contexts, but also can can justify you not not saying some things that, that really, I think scripture demands that it's you say. It's a really fascinating dynamic, because I in my little town, I, I know a couple of pastors personally who had to quit because of that time period, between COVID response yeah, and yeah. for just trying to be responsible and, and not even like, I mean, even having services where it's like one can be maskless, one's not, but then for not exalting Trump from the pulpit, and they all have left ministry because it was just like it became like a mental health issue where they're being they're like having so so much you know vitriol from the congregation uh so they disengaged in a different way obviously they've kind of like just exercised themselves from the whole situation but it's it's always an interesting response because the christian nationalism thing is such a pointed and seems or maybe it's just so simple and it's rhetoric yeah. that it's easy to adhere to and then trying to have a, a nuanced kind of um, articulate academic response to, to you know, saying, hey, well, here's let's look at these reasons why this doesn't really pan out, blah, 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 is it requires so much more that you see a lot of these pastors either leaving or sometimes they're just like quietly going underground, mm-hmm. <laughs> not underground, but mm-hmm. kind of underground, like just I'm just going to go away from the public eye as much as possible. Yeah. Which puts us in a really weird spot to figure out how to navigate the future. Yeah, yeah. And I really, like, I have a lot of, of sympathy for um, 
for pastors right now trying to deal with. I mean, I just spent most of last week at a conference with a bunch of pastors who are trying to figure out how to do this. And, um, and I have a lot of, I mean, I got fired from my church over the book that I wrote. Like I'm aware of the cost Mm. and and the sacrifice and how, like how painful working through all of that can be. Um, And, and I don't, yeah, I don't ever, I don't ever want to sound like, you know, just do the thing because, you know, it, it shouldn't matter. But at the same time, I've talked to a lot of people who are um, new in this. They're new pastors. They're just graduating from seminary a few years ago. And their mentality is, I got to keep my head down for 10 or 15 years, and then I'll be able to to kind of push a little bit. And there's some wisdom. Years. Yeah, there's some wisdom in like, you need to earn trust. You need to be a part of the community. You need to... Right. But I worry that some of them aren't thinking enough about if I never exercise this muscle of, of having the courage to say the hard thing, Yeah. why on earth would I think that after 10 or 15 years of never saying anything about any of it, I suddenly will have the totally. guts necessary to do that when, when, when it really is the hardest thing. Like when it yeah. finally is like, I can't stay silent about this. You might be surprised. I, I know of examples of people who I generally trusted and believed would do the right thing and thought they were just being wise and careful. And then the thing happened that I thought crossed a line and you needed to say something and the muscle hadn't been exercised. And so they did it. Totally. Yeah. We had a, we had a guy on, um, several episodes ago who had written an article about, you know, the, the world or the church, they don't need our hot takes as, Mm -hmm. you know, pastors. And it's interesting because, um, I hear that as well, maybe silence is best um when something happens culturally but i'm but but i hear you and not directly challenging that thought because i know you're not you know you're not pro platform and pro like i have to say something about everything yeah but there does seem to be a line in there somewhere between keeping your head down and not trying to build a platform and pastorally and prophetically engaging culture what as you talk to pastors like the two of us or some of the people that you were with, how do you how do you engage their imaginations around having these conversations about politics without being partisan? Mm, What's that? Mm-hmm. How do you and I know I know you cover a bunch of that in your book, but if we were just engaging like now yeah. in sort of conversation, what, where would you direct them? How would you begin to encourage them? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, one of the things I feel like I say the most often um, that I, I I understand on face probably doesn't sound like real advice. <laughs> it probably sounds a little bit like a cop out, but I think it's really true and important. Um, and I alluded to this earlier, but but really having a sense as Christians of not only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and not thinking that we have to come up with the right strategy or the right plan or kind of program everything out, but, but recognizing the real gift in the moment of the Holy Spirit in our communities and ourselves. Mm-hmm. But also realizing that I think the real challenge now is not, you know, which of these passages has an explicitly political message and that you can't deny it and you have to do it. And which one is up for debate and which one, I get asked that a lot. Like, mm-hmm. when do I have to say something? And when is it up to wisdom or when is it sort of we can agree to disagree as Christians. And so as a person with spiritual authority, I shouldn't teach this as authoritative to people. 
I wish that there was just like a hard and fast rule. I wish I could say like, here's the 10 issues that just are non-negotiables and we have to do it. And here's the 10 that are up to you. And here's the 10. I think the reality is we as finite creatures, um, not just fallen, we are fallen, but we're also finite as a good mm. gift from God. Mm. Like we're, we're fallen by sin, but also we were meant, we were created to be small <laughs> and exist at one time and one place and have limited resources and that is a gift of god to us to to exist in that way as creatures that are finite and fallen and the fallenness adds a whole other dimension of difficulty to the good gift of of being finite um we are supposed to be dependent upon the leading of the holy spirit to respond in our specific context in our specific time and place to whatever is happening in front of us and ask and truly ask god what what do you demand of us now in this moment and I think a lot of evangelicals, especially, but many, this is true of many Christians, we've been taught to read the Bible and to think about ourselves as if there's a universal list of rules that apply in all times and places. We just have to kind of fit the puzzle pieces together mm. and we'll know what to do. And we might have to rely on someone who wrote a really great book that will tell us, you know, here's the strategy or here's the, but we've really, I think, lost a sense of, you won't know that the moment is there until it's there. Like you can have, I, and I hope that you have the right kinds of spiritual formation, the right kinds of disciplines, the right kinds of corporate worship together to make you into the kinds of people that can respond in the moment. But if you were 16 years old and the civil rights movement is just getting started and you're a white guy in a church who's read the Bible a bunch and your pastor says, I want you to lead a Bible study, you're 16, but I want you to learn how to do it. You couldn't in that moment, like in the 16 years of your life up until then, have kind of figured out everything theologically to bam, be able to respond to that moment. There's a new demand in front of you that wasn't there five years before. And that maybe when you're 35 and been a pastor, that won't, it won't be the same demand. And so I think really like having both the spiritual formation to put us, to put us in the right kind of context and position and make us into the right kind of people that can respond. But then the willingness to have a certain amount of like open handedness with what we're going to do. We want to plan and strategize and figure everything out. Right. And and I think people on Twitter want you to say either in the pulpit you respond to every hot button thing as it comes or you never do because the church is spiritual and doesn't deal with that. Instead of saying who your church is will determine whether in this moment what is demanded of you is to say a hard word or to say a comforting word or to say, I can't I can't tell you what that will be. If, it, if you're mm-hmm. at a predominantly white church that refuses to deal with racial justice and Ahmaud Arbery is killed. What's demanded of you to say in that moment will 100% be different than if you're the pastor of a predominantly black church in an area where police brutality feels right in your face. It's going to be different. And mm. the word of comfort or the word of conviction or or when you say it or when you don't, you know, if, if there's been an act of racial injustice and also someone in your small church lost a child yesterday, that mm. will change what you say and how you, or if you say anything about this or when you decide to do it, or yeah. Um, yeah. I just think, in one way, like I said, that sounds like a cop out. On the other hand, I just think we need to be like really persistent about relying upon the Holy Spirit to guide us and and recognizing that it is always going to be specific and contingent and we're gonna make mistakes as we do it, but we can't the idea that we'll have a have a, a system that will help us figure that out, I think is is looking for a kind of certainty that we were never supposed to have. Yeah. So let's say you're the pastor of a white church and George Floyd happens and the, that summer erupts in all of the protests. And um, 
that's not a conversation that is naturally occurring. You don't celebrate Martin Luther King weekend. You don't have any sort of lineage of engaging with that issue. How do you discern um, that you're not just jumping on the fad of woke social justice, which will be the accusation, versus mm-hmm. a deeply prophetic you know, eruption of the real into kind of the pretend illusion that keeps us in, you know, middle-class suburban churches sort of safe and comfortable. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think on one hand, in the moment, with what you can do just in the moment, is it's really not hard (laughs) to find scriptural language that addresses something like that. Mm -hmm. And so not using, I think sometimes the pitfall people get into is they want to genuinely, you know, confront their church. They want to speak the word that needs to be spoken, but they also have been formed by social media and the things they've read to maybe want like a great little clip of like the thing they said, or they want, um, and really being persistent to go back to scripture because not only does scripture provide incredible language for that but also if your real goal is to bring people along with you then you'll go to sources that are common ground for you that they trust that they can you know be brought along with but the other thing that's a lot harder i think is you you have to have been the kind of person that was willing to say that before this moment Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe it won't be like, I, I truly think the people that I have learned to trust the most are people who they said the hard thing in the pulpit when it absolutely mattered. But the other times I heard them talk about those things weren't from the pulpit. It was a more natural, we're doing dishes after an event at the church and someone gets an alert on their phone about something. And that pastor is able to kind of navigate a conversation about that with a handful of people in a not kind of public or, mm-hmm. you know, from the pulpit kind of context. Um, that changes how you receive the the word in the pulpit, Um, Mm. not only in terms of consistency, but in terms of what feels performative or what doesn't. Like if that has felt like a genuine part of your ministry and your life, um, which goes back to the like, this has, this has to be a small thing that happens over time and it has to happen in relationships. So when I mm. said, you know, I, I want someone who is thinking, you know, for 10 or 15 years about, I have to put my head down and just kind of wait that the, the part of that that's truthful is maybe for 10 or 15 years, you're having small conversations with people. You're saying something when it, when you need to say it, but you're not making this the forefront of the ministry mm. that you're doing. There is some wisdom in, in going, I'm building trust for years. Mm-hmm. But as long as that slow building trust is not silence when it when silence is not what's needed, and as long as it is, I'm trying to prove to you that this is a part of my life and this is a part of my genuine conviction from the yeah. reading of scripture, that mm-hmm. will serve dividends in the future. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what I fear too often happens is not that. What tends to happen is I want to win the approval of these people. And so I know that like washing dishes with this woman who's been leading Bible study for 20 years and she makes a comment that I really feel like I have to respond to building trust suddenly is staying silent about that when that doesn't build trust. And that doesn't prepare you for the hard thing you have to say in the pulpit that you might not anticipate at all that will happen in five yeah. years. Um, but the, but the, it's really hard <laughs> to look this one woman in the eyes who's washing dishes with you and, you know, made a racist comment or said something disparaging about someone in the, it's really, really hard. That's way harder actually than standing up in the pulpit and saying a thing that might be risky. It might sacrifice something. But I honestly think that interpersonal, like having to look at someone that close in their face 
and and carefully figure out how to call them out <laughs> in a way that like that's so much harder. Totally. But I feel like that's that's the kind of thing that how, you have to work out to the other stuff. That's weird. So, it seems like we saw that on the the opposite version of that during this Trump time period where like there were pastors who wanted platforms and galvanized hard on sharp rhetoric that yeah. spoke to the moment over and over again, but lacked all yeah. of the depth and the compassion, the empathy that you're talking mm. about, just kind of leaning hard, like taking that, but doing the inverse of it. But I have a question for both of you. Um, it's like all this kind of the stuff that you were just talking about, it's all like kind of practical ways that a pastor could over a decade or whatever, kind of create a trustworthy, um, you know, place between the congregation and even just within themselves and the things that, you know, being able to trust where, how they are processing information, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're talking about the Holy Spirit stuff, um, the, you know, I, I think so many of our listeners and same with probably your guys' listeners have gone through the deconstruction process or in the deconstruction process. And mm-hmm. part of that process has been taking things that have, spiritual elements like prayer or this idea of being able to trust the Holy Spirit or hear the Holy Spirit or allow the Holy Spirit to lead or, you know, language that we grew up with that we all kind of just accepted as Mm -hmm. part of our identity, but have no idea what it means. And so now as people are kind of picking through the the rubble and trying to figure out what means what, the practical stuff is kind of easy because it's like, hey, yeah, these are ways that you can you know, practically build forward from here. But that kind of stuff can be really difficult to understand. Like, what does it mean to allow the Holy Spirit to lead? And I know this is a huge question, but at least in like a, (laughs) just in the context of this little thing here, I think that you're right, but I don't think that a lot of us have the language to be able to understand what that fully means in this time period. And I think people really want to actually like, I want to trust the Holy Spirit. I have zero idea of what that means. Yeah. Is it the, when the hair on the back of my neck stands up? Or is it when someone says a prophetic word that maybe ought not be rooted in anything to me? Or or is there something, or is it a process of discernment and, um, you know, a long time of being able to r- wrestle with reading and understanding and listening? Like, you know, what is, is it a muscle that yeah. you develop that allows you to yeah. kind of hear and see? But I'm curious what both of you guys think about that because it's an important element that I think a lot of us don't have the tools for anymore mm. or never did. Yeah. Caitlin, that's you, man. No. <laughs> Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I, the first thing that I want to say, I feel like, again, doesn't totally sound like an answer, but one of the things, I, I think I said this earlier, um, one of the things that has shaped my kind of insistence that this is part of the answer is saying we are finite and we are dependent on the Holy Spirit and what's demanded of us in this moment now is not what's demanded of us in another moment is reading black Christians throughout American history. And I really, (laughs) I don't have it quite theologized out why I think this is true, but I do think reading people, I mentioned Maria Stewart, reading people like David Walker, um, reading um, early slave narratives that kind of weave in their story, their narrative of their life with um, the narrative of scripture. Um, reading, reading Martin Luther King Jr., reading James Cone, reading the people who were doing the theology on the ground in the civil rights movement and post the civil rights movement. Um, I just, I just think that ha- reading what people did in response to an immediate situation that demanded a lot of them. 
reading what scripture they went to and what it looked like for them. Um, and, and James Cone has this great book um, on the spirituals and the blues, mm. which is one of the places that he it. talks. Oh, good. Oh, it's one of my, I feel like it's one of the ones that doesn't get talked enough about with Cone, but it's so good. And it so much has to do with the language of scripture in the church and how that shapes your ability to respond. I think it's in that one that he has this line, I think at the very beginning, it could be in a different book, but I think it's now one where he talks about the kinds of churches that he grew up in, in Arkansas, were the kinds of churches where we really sang and preached and acted like Moses could walk in the door, <laughs> like Jesus could walk in the door. Like these, mm. these, these figures from scripture were so contemporary with us and their mm. struggles were so contemporary with us that I think we wouldn't have been surprised if Moses walked through the door to lead us out of Egypt. Like it just felt like that we lived in the wow. same world as them. And I do, I, I really think that the Holy Spirit is so much a part of why people were able to read scripture that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that they feel contemporaneous to me, that we're a part of, by the miracle of God, we are part of the same people of God as Moses. Like the fact that we get to claim that is, is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. I think reading those people and learning to read scripture that way I think is one way that we kind of learn that dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because truly, if you're reading Cone or you're reading MLK or you're reading whoever else and you you see how they read scripture and you're like, that's not like when I go to the Bible, that's not what I mm-hmm. what I experience. If you're trying to model that yourself, I really think it will force a dependence on the spirit to guide you in doing that. And I do think that's one way we can know if it's happening. I don't know exactly how to describe experientially what I think that looks like, but I do know if you are looking at the context in front of you and you feel like you have the resources of the people of God described in scripture, and that feels real to you, that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Like that seems like that's what that would be. Um, And I think one of the ways that we learn that is by reading people who, who clearly work reliant like not just indwelled like we are all but reliant upon the spirit to lead us in the moment whatever it demands of us um and i do really think like (laughs) this is like a very protestant uh, bible (laughs) nerd kind of thing to say that like you know that you're you know you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit and relying on the Holy Spirit when you read your Bible really well. But I do think, like back to your original framing of the question, I think for people who are deconstructing, people who are trying to figure out what sources are still safe, like what do I rely on and how do I move forward when so many things have been tainted by the harm other people did to me or to people I love or, or did publicly, I think learning to return to scripture by reading people who were in a much worse, I mean, truly mm. like risking their lives for the sake of justice in the country um, to read how they read scripture, I think helps us not only read it ourselves more faithfully and make it a thing that is still alive and still motivates our, our work for justice, as opposed to the way it has been twisted by other people that we trusted. I also think it prevents some of us white Christians who are deconstructing or figuring things out and who might be tempted to actually end up discarding some serious resources of the faith that the most marginalized people in our history have relied upon and discarding them with a really, like, we might be trying to be thoughtful, we might be seeking justice, 
and we're still being so white centered. <laughs> like we're mm. still, it's still a form of white supremacy to be like, mm. no, those passages from the Old Testament are worthless to me now. Well, they weren't worthless to enslaved mm. people and to people seeking justice in the civil mm. rights movement. So it's really actually kind of prideful of us to think that's been so tainted beyond the ability to be used. Well, I understand emotionally and, and experientially why we feel that way, but returning to some of those writers and saying, I, I just can't read scripture the same way anymore. Um, not that it fixes every difficult thing, not that it kind of completely heals some of the trauma people have experienced, but it does place you in a different kind of larger Christian tradition. And I think it, I, I think, I think that's required of us to try yeah. and kind of rehabilitate that relationship through those kinds of people. Dang, that's so good, Caitlin. Um, where can people find your thinking online? Um, just as I mean, I, I'd love to pick your brain on this stuff forever, but I want to honor um, you and the thousand things that you're up to um, <laughs> per day. Um, I, I know people can catch you on the Holy Post regularly, mm -hmm. which is fun. And then isn't there something you do for the Patreon community regularly too? Yeah, I'm embarrassed to name it because it sounds so... <laughs> <laughs> it's called it's called getting schooled and you can if you become a patreon supporter of the holy post um twice a month it's really fun because you know we all think sky thinks he knows everything he acts mm. like he knows everything mm. and in those episodes the whole episode is him asking me questions about i love something, it something i'm learning um I so we've done it. one on dispensationalism we've done one on halloween and the satanic panic oh. um we've Ooh. done what we're going to do one on liberation theology next month um, so anyway, we, we're doing a lot of that fun stuff. But you can also find um, links, w which will be live today, um, to pre-order the new book and other resources and stuff. All are on CaitlinShess.com. Yes. Oh man. So just thank you. So proud of you, thank and so you. so cheering you on. Um, I just think it's remarkable to uh, inhabit the spaces that you've inhabited and do so with kind of joyful. Um, thoughtfulness which seems hmm. you know kind of in short supply these days so nice. great job great job nice. um so anyway we encourage you to to check out and if you haven't read the liturgy of politics start there that is i mean really one of the best books i've ever read on the subject and so i would Aww. highly encourage you no it's true i mean it, i've never thought of being discipled politically and how the church provides counter narratives to that formation in the way that you described it. So I thought that was really, really good. Anyway. And awfully timely. And awfully timely. <laughs> you got it, Caitlin. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on Instagram at voxology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for walking the long road with us.